This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Through his yoga teaching and writing, Jacoby Ballard explores the intersections of yoga, capitalism, cultural appropriation, and sexual violence. He offers a queer-centered, fully embodied, and equity-rooted practice with meditations and sequences for processing and healing from trauma, both individually and in community. In this episode, queer, transgender, autistic author and educator Nick Walker talks with Jacoby about his latest book, A Queer Dharma, and the possibilities for finding an unapologetically queer path towards true healing and transformation. This episode was recorded during a live online event on November 18th, 2021. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. All right. Well, hi. I'm Nick Walker, and I have the good fortune to be here today speaking with Jacoby Ballard, author of this wonderful book, A Queer Dharma, which uh, is about to come out. You can see this funny binding here. This is an advanced reader copy, and it's we're recording on November 18th here, and this is uh, book is coming out on November 23rd. So I'm very excited for everyone else to read it, and I'm also aware that at this time, most of our viewers have not had the opportunity to have their lives changed by this book. So, um, uh, Jacoby, I just want to start out by uh, asking, how would you, what would you say? How would you describe the book to those who haven't had the good fortune to read it yet? Sure. Half of it is a queer reading on the heart teachings um, that are found both within yoga and Buddhism. Uh, which includes loving kindness, compassion, uh, joy, and equanimity. Um, and then whenever I teach on those topics, inevitably letting go and anger um, and forgiveness come up too. So there's chapters on those topics as well. And then the other half of the book is a queer critique on mainstream yoga and Buddhism, and then a vision of a liberatory practice forward. Beautiful. And uh I would love to hear about, uh, you do talk about this in, in the book, but I would love to go into just the, the life experiences that brought you to writing this book. What, what, what journey brought you eventually to uh, writing the book? Because writing a book is, uh, is quite a task. So clearly, you know, and the, the passion you brought to it really shows in the writing. So. Where did it come from? <laughs> um, well, I started practicing meditation when I was 17 in high school and I was experiencing uh, bullying. I had experienced uh, bullying, being seen as a queer person. Uh, I wasn't out as queer at the time, but uh, others marked me as different mm-hmm. and treated me so. Um, and so I um, was part of a group called Student Empowerment that uh, was trying to get seniors especially invested in their education and 
um, giving piloting a program where seniors could choose anything to to study. And so I chose uh, meditation, just kind of out of the blue. Looking back, um, it was totally divine intervention because um, it it literally kept me alive through that like final year of of bullying and just being disregarded and dismissed and harassed and assaulted every day, um, verbally, emotionally, occasionally physically. Um, and then um, I, I went away to college and I went all the way across the continent. I grew up in Colorado and went to Maine. Um, now I can see I was clearly fleeing, you know, danger. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, on my college campus, I started doing social justice work and started um, a yoga practice. I was actually mandated uh, to do a, to begin yoga um, because there's a wellness credit in my college, and I procrastinated on it, and then got an email from the registrar just sort of before the second semester of my sophomore year saying, "If you don't take yoga this semester, then you're not going to graduate in two years." <laughs> um, so I took yoga with um, this seventy-year-old uh, woman named Lillian uh, McMullen, and she her life had been changed by the practice. And so she taught in a really liberatory way. And at that time in 19, um, or rather in 2002, um, yoga was generally taught much more holistically than it is now. It was taught as a full path, not just as asana, the postural Mm -hmm. practice. Um, And so that really, that, the physical practice didn't intrigue me because her 70-year-old body could do stuff that my 20-year-old uh, athletic body could not. Um, and then also just like the different pranayama practices, breathing practices that she would teach us and um, uh, the ways that we could resource the nervous system. I now have language for it. I didn't realize it then uh, that that's what we were doing, but um, was really useful. But for a long time, my even though I both started on the college campus, my social justice work and my my yoga and meditation practice were entirely separate and really um, needed to remain so because mm-hmm. social justice world had this value of activists and as martyrs and you know just completely devoted to the cause and often at the expense of the body, at the expense of family, at the expense of many things um, and. Uh, didn't really have room for spiritual practice. Now, more and more, and at various times in history, social movements know that like spiritual practice is actually how we sustain our, our activism. We, we need mm-hmm. that. Um, and we see throughout the world colonization, um, uh, the violence of colonization targets the spiritual and health practices of a people to break, yes. to break them. Um, at the same time, in the yoga and meditation world, they didn't want to talk about social justice. They didn't want to talk that it was primarily about how it was primarily white people in a room practicing uh, historically South Asian tradition. They didn't want to talk about um, uh, so anything. The you know the attack on Iraq and Afghanistan. Then when I was when I was learning yoga, they didn't they don't want didn't want to talk about racism. Didn't want to talk about different identities. So my paths remained pretty separate. Um, and then I would say that they like kind of clashingly con- con- converged when I was working for a natural food store in New York that was run by a yoga ashram. And um, I had just the year before come out as trans and I was dressing like I'm dressed now. Um, 
and but hadn't medically transitioned at all and was talking to my coworkers about how to treat me respectfully you know mm-hmm. while we were, we were while we were on the job and um my boss didn't like that uh, um and um after six months there on the job i got i got fired um largely for being trans for for being out and being trans mm-hmm. um and that you know it was heartbreaking because it was a, it was run by a yoga institution i had thought up to that point like yoga is good and just like consistently holistically just all about goodness and liberation and it was the other side of the social justice work that i've been doing and in that moment I realized like, oh no, absolutely not. This is the shadow side of yoga and we need to reckon with this. Um, so so then I founded the Root Community Health Center in, in Brooklyn about a year later. And uh, we did work at the intersection of, of healing and social justice. Now there's a whole field called healing justice, right? Um, but it was really new then in 2008 when we started and we were doing things much differently. You know, we had acupuncture, massage, uh, yoga, herbal medicine, and everything was at a, on a sliding scale except for the yoga classes. The yoga classes we consistently marked um, at the low range of what the going rate was in New York City with the intention of, you know, people that can afford these services elsewhere can come here. Um, and then we, we just kept doing what we what, what we're doing. And, you know, Third Root still exists. It, um, been around for 13, 13 years doing what it what it does and um it's also located in the flatbush neighborhood of brooklyn um which is a really diverse neighborhood where there's 13 languages spoken uh, locally and so one of our goals as you know a social justice institution was to um eventually work towards being able to speak all those languages uh, inside our center so that anyone who walked in could see that could hear their home language and in general our whole goal was for the the inside of us to to mimic and mirror the the external neighborhood um, which was quite a different project than most yoga studios were embarking on or it still embark on or acupuncture places or, or massage studios or even herbal medicine at the time was um yeah um and then I, we just kept doing that and and um, I left Brooklyn in 2014 and, and kept doing social justice work and had to figure out as I moved to like a small town in upstate New York, how do I still do this work at the intersection of healing and justice? And then as I moved to Massachusetts, now that I'm in Utah, um, and you know, there's people that are hurting everywhere. There's injustice, unfortunately, everywhere. So there's always a place for my work. Um, I would also say just where the book came from was um, being harmed in um, a place where I went to heal and being outraged and being um, really sad about that. Um, and so I started writing when, when I uh, started teaching queer and trans yoga and mainstream yoga was pushing back on um, affinity spaces at the time. Now there's lots of BIPOC classes and, you know, classes for um, fat folks and, and all kinds of different abilities and queer and trans yoga is pretty common now, but at the time affinity classes uh, weren't. And so, so many mainstream teachers and studios were asking me like, isn't that uh, dividing the, the community? Isn't that exclusive? Isn't that creating separation? Um, 
but what they're really asking for then is for us to participate in a space that that centered white folks that centered straight folks that centered um skinny bodies and and, mm-hmm. and wealthy folks um to at our own expense right um so so this book really came from like wanting to claim space for queer and trans people and just knowing that yoga mainstream yoga wasn't actively practicing instituting creating policies that based on the teachings that we claim to be devoted to that's beautiful just i mean a a beautiful journey and of course full of full of pain you know with you know as you said we it kind of starts from from being harmed and from wanting to see the world get better and offer something better, create safety, not only, you know, for ourselves, but also for other people, for our communities. Uh, I'm really struck. uh, I'm struck by some similarities there that for me, that it was also, um, uh, you know, because I've been an Aikido teacher for 40 years and I came, uh, uh, that also came for me, uh, from, from being bullied and targeted for, for being read as queer. Uh, and I didn't actually, you know, I've sort of always known myself as queer in some way and, uh, discovering myself as trans is much more recent for me. I was pretty, is, uh, pretty advanced in years before before I, I got as far as, oh, wait, actually, you know, actually full-on trans woman and not just, you know, genderqueer, fluid, but definitely, as as with you, rec- somehow recognized as queer by the people who were most violently opposed to it from, from very young. And, uh, you know, so I definitely, you know, started my Aikido training at age 12 specifically, you know, with the intent of being able to fight back better. Yeah. And, uh, and for me, it was, yeah, it was also life-saving. And also, uh, um, I think there's some, there's something similar there with what's happened, what happens how yoga has become just so much about the asanas, about the poses and the movements. And I, you address that so beautifully throughout the book that it's, it's about, you know, what is, what's the heart of yoga? You're really getting to the heart of it. And what is this really about as a path of spiritual healing and awakening and transformation? And that, of course, that's what, that's what, draws me to Aikido and te- keeps me practicing and teaching. And uh, it was the farthest thing from my mind when I started training. And I see that out in the world uh, too, in mainstream Aikido as well, that uh, that for so many people, it's about the physical techniques and uh, uh, there's a heart missing. And I'm really committed to, to folk- keeping, keeping focus on that heart, keeping that centered. Yeah. So, um, in terms of social justice work, because yeah, we do come from this place of being, uh, you know, being targets of of injustice, being from marginalized groups, and also in time 
recognizing not just how we're marginalized and oppressed, but also how we're privileged and how we have mm-hmm. to watch ourselves to make sure that we're not oppressors. Um, yeah. How do we deal with that? Um, but so much social justice activism I see in the world is so, uh, uh, it's so anger driven, you know, and there is, there's certainly uh, no end of cause for outrage as we look at the world around us, if we have any empathy for, for the suffering of others or even our own suffering, there's no end of cause for outrage. And, and so it becomes so outrage driven and so anger driven and, um, I, uh, that sometimes, you know, makes me despair of activism, but, uh, and I found it so revitalizing to read your book because you're really talking about social justice activism from a place of love and from a place of compassion. And Mm -hmm. I'd love to uh, just hear more about how that connects with your yoga practice and, what it's like, you know, to to work in social justice activism communities where often uh, there is just a lot of anger and people acting out their trauma. And how do you how do you bring that spirit of love to it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think of anger is incredibly important and incredibly wise because it's telling us mm-hmm. that something is wrong. It's telling us that some people are being marked, some people are being targeted. You know that. Um, the violence has been multi-generational for lots of communities that's existed for centuries, right? Um, and so I never want to dismiss anger. I think mm-hmm. that's it's so important to, to live into, to feel into, and I think catalyzes most people in social justice work, whether it's on behalf of someone who's not like them at all or on behalf of like what's happening in our own communities. Um, and I've also learned through my years of activism and through especially my Buddhist practice that um, where there's, you know, practices of right speech, where one of the aspects of right speech is not to speak in anger. And the reason is not, it's not, the instruction is not to stuff down your anger or bury mm-hmm. your anger or dispose of your anger. It's just rather to like let that moment of anger wash through you so that um, because as a human species, we recognize tone of voice and facial expression and body expression uh, so much quicker than the content of our words. Um, and so if I'm speaking at you with anger moving through my body, then your nervous system is going to receive that as a threat. Um, and that's yeah. going to stop communication. Mm. Um, so the right speech practice is really um, in service of the wisdom of the anger to ensure that the the wisdom that the, the anger arises from within me can be delivered to you in a way that you can absorb um, after the righteousness, after the rage, after, you know, the adrenaline has rushed through my body. Um, so I think, you know, it's really important then for activists to have that understanding of the nervous system and how we're going to be received that that's not it's not about strategy it's not about tactic it's like about the human body that like we can't this is how it works this is how, this is how our nervous systems work so you know practices of discharge are so important to like get the anger get that energy that fire out um 
so that we can arrive in that place of wisdom. And then also recognizing that, um, that the heartbreak that's underneath the anger comes from this place of love, like, like something precious is being assaulted or killed or damaged or destroyed. And, um, and that's important to us. And, and, you know, it really under, so I think underneath the anger, if we dig deep enough is the love inevitably for all of us, we just have to access it and find it, um, which means it's hard work, right? Because it means we have to go through the wound and that's scary. And we don't have a lot of, um, techniques, uh, at large to do that. That's, that's for me, why, like, why I kept practicing through through my activism and why they were two separate channels for a long time. Um, I didn't recognize it at the time that my you know my spiritual practices were fueling my activism and allowing it to be sustainable. Um, at the same time, those spiritual places that I went to heal then like created more causes for my activism because they <laughs> could be you know there's racism and there was misogyny and all of the things. Um, so that's just that's, that's that's beautiful I just I always I need to take a moment after hearing that sort of thing just to let it soak in so I don't forget it I, I want to say um, I want to geek out for a moment on uh, somatic psychology because you know somatic psychology professor and um that's definitely on my mind when I read about, you know, these uh, transformative somatic practices and, you know, you really address um, uh, using yoga to, to heal trauma mm -hmm. and what it, what it means to do that. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested uh, a lot of a lot of the Western somatic psychology tradition has its roots in the work of Wilhelm Reich, who talked about uh, the idea that our our traumas and our our psychological defenses that we needed for survival through early trauma and are now kind of stuck in, you know, these stuck trauma responses that we we live out and that inhibit our. Yeah. our relationality and our connection, this stuff lives in the body as these deep muscular tensions, which Reich referred to as character armor. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm something I've been struck by over the years is I watch people in uh, conventional yoga practice, you know, very asana focused, just athletic yoga practice is that a person can be extremely flexible in their, in their limbs and, you know, able to do these extended headstands and wild stuff that my body certainly can't do. Uh, um, and yet the armoring is still there. These deep conditioned tendencies, these mm. deep tensions that kind of close off the breathing and close off the heart and mm -hmm. in, uh, situations of conflict or when confronted with the, the unknown or the other, that still remains. And somehow be, that flexibility work, uh, no matter how athletic it gets, is not the same as the de-armoring work that releases those deep tensions. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you approach that? How do you approach uh, um, actually getting to that deep level of release in your practice and your teaching it's a really good question and a really important distinction because i think 
yeah, we can practice asana in a way that reinforces our patterns that are not skillful in relationship to ourselves or in relationship to the world, right? Um, And I certainly see that. I think, you know, asana, one of my yoga students uh, for their their final project um, studied the relationship with between asana and photography and Ooh. that um, that that was an important the development of photography was really important in centering asana because it it, it uh, displayed yoga as just this physical practice of contorting the body when like, there's so much else going on, but like taking a picture of someone meditating is like not <laughs> that interesting, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, as, as used as they are in like pharmaceutical commercials and so forth now. <laughs> but um, I try to teach in a way that um, invites students to let go of the performance of asana, the performance of a headstand, the performance of putting your foot behind your head and more just like what is going on in the, in your heart and your breath and your body on the way there because there's you know if we're not tuning into all those other layers of our being then we're going to hurt ourselves inevitably because we have to mm-hmm. not be listening to something in order to just like forge forward and like um, develop the physical at the expense of other aspects so i think that that tuning in slowing down, um, inviting people to have, there's lots of different ways to practice and lots of things to do. You know, I often say when I'm teaching and my students probably just are sick of hearing it that that come every week, um, you know, if we're all doing the same thing, that some of us are not being authentic in this moment. Because if we're really each listening to our body, hearts, and minds, it should be a variety of things happening in the same room. Um, if we're all just like moving into warrior two at the same pace with the same breath, but someone's leading and someone's disregarding, someone's following, someone's totally dissociated. And that's not yoga, right? Yoga is about all of our different layers being united and connected. And if we can have that in each of our own beings, then we can also find that sense of connection with, with one another. Love it, love it. Yeah, the um, I I find um, you know in uh, the way I approach my Aikido practice, my Aikido teaching, I see it as distinctly queer and not you know I have a queer friendly Aikido dojo, but it's not. Uh, you know, it's not, you know, we say on the website, you know, we're, we're, we're queer friendly or LGBTQ friendly dojo, but you know, the dojo is not primarily queer. It's just, it's a traditional Aikido uh, dojo. And uh, yet I feel that I'm doing, I'm doing the work of queering in, in my practice uh, very much. Like there's something, it's not about who's present in a given class and who's queer and who isn't, you know, I might be the only queer person there at the time, or there might be a, 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 might be a very queer group of students, but I always feel like I'm, the work of queering is in progress in the sense of there's something that we're 
there's some work that we're doing, it changing our embodiments and changing our neurology in a way that that defies the gender binary that starts mm-hmm. to queer it and disrupt traditional performances of uh, heteronormative masculinity and heteronormative fem- femininity. Mm-hmm. And do you find something like that in, in your yoga practice? Would you say that apart from creating spaces that are specifically safe and welcoming for queer people, is there something distinctly queer or queering about your yoga? Yes. <laughs> I'd love to hear about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we could break down what queering means a little bit, right? Okay. Um, for, for me, I think it's uh, queer as an identity is both uh, about sexual attraction and also about political identification and commitments. Um, uh, identifying as queer is about being committed to anti-racism and working against misogyny and um, xenophobia and anti-Semitism and um, all of the layers of oppression in our, in our world. Um, and so we can do that on the yoga mat too, right? Because all of that has to do with the body. It's judgments and dismissal and violence against the body. Um, mm-hmm of a fat person, of a disabled person, of a black or brown person, of a trans person. Um, uh, so I think part of how my practice is queer and how I, I teach in a queer way is absolutely com- in, including the political in the space. I've been in so many yoga classes where teachers, let me just say white straight women, have said, you know, we're going to keep the rest of the world out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like we're going, we're at, we're retreating from the world. And, you know, those of us in marked identities, we can't, we don't have that privilege because that same, um, that same violence that's out in the world is likely in the spaces that we come to heal, which is why mm-hmm. we craft affinity spaces which doesn't mean that we can ever keep oppression outside of the door, but there's less education, there's less explaining, there's fewer microaggressions if we're uh, in affinity space, likely, hopefully. Um, um, I also think about querying uh, embodiment, like there's so many ways that men's bodies are expected to be and women's bodies are expected to be. And Mm -hmm. that starts at a really early age, right? Like I have a toddler who's almost three and like, we're like (laughs) paying attention to like when he gets those notions and ready to intervene and call the school and talk to the other parents and, and other things, because um, we know that the gender binary, um, limits the humanity of all of us, whether you're trans or cisgender, mm-hmm. whether you're, you believe in a binary gender for yourself or you're non-binary. Um, and so there's ways of moving in the body that's expected and acceptable uh, for men and for women. And, um, you know, ways that someone gets marked as we both did, right? Mm-hmm. As Because as, I, I think for me in high school, it wasn't about my sexual preference. Um, like I wasn't sexual at that at that time it, it, that hadn't kicked in for me. It was about how I was embodied and and my yes. my gender mm-hmm. um, that that was marked. And so um, 
I think it's so important to explore that on the mat and get curious about what those, you know, the, the layers of armoring that, that we hold, especially folks that are queer or disabled or fat or any kind of um, oppressed body holds just from dealing with the violence in the world that's directed against us, um, you know, in micro and macro ways every day. Yes. I found, um, you know, for me, um, I was, uh, you know, when I was very young, you know, my environment was, you know, it was completely unsafe as it is for most of us to, to, to be trans, completely unsafe for me to be uh, a girl having been assigned male at birth. And even, even as I learned to protect myself and such still, uh, I just, uh, um, I kind of hid, I, 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 even though I sensed my queerness, I really hid my femininity from myself in a big way. And through yep. a large, uh, you know, there was a large portion of my adult life um, where I, I built up quite the, quite the facade of toxic masculinity and, uh, uh, you know, super, uh, a conventionally binary masculine embodiment and it felt terrible mm -hmm. to be in but i uh it really took me a long time um and a lot of a lot of somatic work to uh get through it and discover oh wait i'm you know uh well I'm, I'm a woman and this whole like i'm wearing this awful ill-fitting man suit and mm -hmm. i i don't even know if I'm ever going to medically transition, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm middle-aged and I don't know if I need to, I, I, for me, I found so much of my gender dysphoria could just be gotten rid of by changing my embodiment and getting the, mm. getting all that facade of masculinity out of my embodiment. Um, uh, and out of how I carried myself and how my body was you know i i used to mean uh you know five years ago i was much bigger physically i really was carrying this extra mass from uh just building this this sort of huge bulky man suit and uh which just kind of melted away with just uh from changing how i moved and letting letting some authentic authentic embodiment emerged from inside and it completely changed how I did Aikido. It completely, my Aikido changed uh, uh, enormously from dropping that. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm just wondering if you had similar experiences or have seen similar experiences unfold in yoga with the actual, some shift in the physical practice uh, uh, around a person discovering themselves as trans and uh or shedding the gender binary like what have you watched that happen and uh transform your practice or other people's practice yeah i mean i think that's part of the value of having a trans teacher <laughs> is mm -hmm. that for for a lot of us that we create the space for um 
gender exploration and don't have any kind of narrative or judgment about how someone should should show up. Um, so I've witnessed that not just in trans folks or queer folks, but also in like straight men, which is like mm-hmm. beautiful. Yes, because yes, part of is. the violence comes from they see something in you that they're afraid to see in themselves, right? And so they they enact harm on you so they don't have to see it in themselves, right? And and it works, right? Like I did the same thing. I totally hit and and pretended I was straight and acted straight and, you know, denied mm-hmm. denied myself until I couldn't, where it was like gonna kill me. Yeah. Um, and I also I, I I see that for all of us, you know, like that that the gender binary limits the wholeness of our humanity. My again, my my kid is assigned male at birth and we could take him to the daycare. He's almost three. And every other male-bodied child is like wearing blues and greens and oranges and never sparkles and you know, only sneakers mm-hmm. or big boots. And there's like it's so limited. Like this is these are your options for for being yourself. And for little girls, it, it's bigger. Um you know, I, I think it's it's interesting for me being trans and parenting this little boy child to see how limiting the gender binary is specifically for boys and men. I think it's yes. much more narrow for mm-hmm. boys and men, much wider for women. And then and then trans folks are seen as a threat, you know, and, you know, like this year is the worst year in, on record for violence against trans people. Um, we're in the trans week of awareness, so it's on my mind. Um, because we, we challenge that just by our very existence. Yes. Be- because I've been in one restroom and the other. And I like, you know, that that's, that's a threat. And, and all of our insecurities or, um, you know, there's, there's a lot get, gets kicked up by the existence of trans people that could perhaps otherwise be invisibilized. But I also think even if we didn't exist that like the gender binary would be hurting um, folks inevitably. It would just be slower to come out because we wouldn't be the like physical mirroring of like, hey, this is what that's possible guys. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, we really are. We're sort of are the leading edge of look at what's possible here. Look at the levels of liberation and authenticity that are possible. Look what's possible when you step outside these these narrow little boxes of heteronormative masculinity and heteronormative femininity. And someone kind of has to, you know, be playing at those edges in order to expand the window of possibility for people. Yeah. Yeah. Then there there can be such a grief there and so much... um... I think, you know, that masculinity, especially that masculinity has such an impact. Um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought a little bit. Um, Yeah, sorry, (laughs) that got interrupted. I'm sure it'll come back around. You said, you know, you mentioned, you know, that transformative effect that it has even on straight men to be in a Mm -hmm. queer friendly environment. And I've totally seen that in Aikido as well, that uh, because that the, the requirement, yeah, the requirements of heteronormative masculinity are so awful. There's, they really are 
just it's like you're required to to guard your masculinity masculinity with this belligerence and i mean the the straight men in my aikido dojo are just such sweet beautiful human beings i i'm just uh uh i'm just always like wow this is what healthy masculinity looks like without the the restrictions of heteronormativity just getting to be yourself and like they're still straight men but they're just beautiful wonderful people and it's such an honor to work with them and we do have straight men come in and try out uh the dojo and uh uh, sometimes really freak out and leave. Like they really don't like that they're being asked to, uh, you know, to get softer or even being asked to be instructed by women. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's striking. There's sort of there's some that are not ready to let go of it, and they get so aggressive mm-hmm. about defending it and are so indignant about the queerness of the space and uh and and some of them come to it and they're like oh this is just what i'm looking for oh i can relax into this practice and it's just it's very striking whether someone is you know just the difference between the people who are ready for that liberation the people who are not able to let go of it yet yeah and i would imagine then also that you see relationships forming between straight men that are like totally different than like yeah what's outside of it because part of masculinity is that we should like do it by ourselves and be independent and not have to rely on anyone when actually that's just like fundamentally not true about human existence like we do in (laughs) fact need each other and so we're killing like the we're killing men and boys right and like they have the highest suicide rates um, of any group of people is white men (laughs) Yeah. Because of that isolation, how isolating whiteness is, how isolating masculinity is. Oh, it really is. I'm so glad to be rid of it uh, in, in my in myself. But yeah, it's true. The relationships between and Aikido is such a relational art. Uh, you know, all of our our practice, we're constantly practicing in partners, you know, we're we're intimately you know, grabbing each other and throwing each other around and sweating on each other. And there's such a, a, an intimate connection with other people's bodies and with letting other people see, like, uh, this is what you do. Uh, like, you know, there's a nakedness to it of uh, because we're dealing with the fight, flight and freeze reflex and how to transcend that. And so putting each other in putting ourselves and each other in these direct martial situations of here we are actually physically grabbing each other. And how do we handle this in a yeah. way that is not full of violence and not full of the fight flight reflex. Mm-hmm. And so we see each other at our, uh, you know, in our deepest struggles, like, Oh, this yeah. is, this is, we see each other in our states of fear and overwhelm because we're actively working with and working through those states. And uh, it really does build these beautiful relationships for the people who are ready to handle it and stick with it. I'm curious that I'm curious about that in yoga too, because um, you know, it's uh, we both, we both use the term on the mat 
you know, most practices on the mat. But of course, the Aikido mat is the whole floor is covered in mat and we're all flinging each other around on it and touching each other. And yoga, usually there's separate mats and there's mm-hmm. not a lot of physical contact between people except maybe the teacher adjusting your body. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about how community blossoms within uh, a yoga studio, particularly within a, a queer and trans yoga space. Like where... Where does the where does the community and the connection start to form mm-hmm. since people aren't grabbing each other in yoga generally? <laughs> yeah, um, well, I usually do a check in or a check out, mm-hmm. um, and it's usually the invitation is a reflection around the philosophy that I'm th- that I'm teaching about, and the philosophies are always timeless, right? That like compassion is turning our awareness and our and our hearts towards suffering and there's always suffering in the world to turn towards there's always going to be suffering in our lives and so um you know when i when i ask those questions people have the possibility of passing or you know some people might go really deep um and be so vulnerable and other people might keep it surface layer and keep keep themselves safe you know, but hopefully if people keep coming back, they know that like that's a place where they can un- unfurl. And that was part of my intention with queer and trans yoga. And then also just how I teach any class that I teach now is um, getting to know how the practice lives through each of us. And and when I say the practice, I'm not, I'm really not talking about like handstands or plank poses or warrior twos, but like, um, what is your heart opening to? What are your obstacles to opening your heart? What, um, what is your trauma in your life and how do you see it get triggered and how do you get through that moment? And just getting to know each other on that deep level. And um, you know, what I see again and again is that students fall in love with each other, whether mm-hmm. that's you know, a platonic love or you know, I've also seen intimate relationships blossom in the space just because it can be a really deep practice and we get to see each other's inner core. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's so beautiful. It's such an honor. That's what got me to teach in the first place when I started yes. teaching um, in college was, was teaching um, ad- administrators at my college. And they came there for all the reasons I know now that people <laughs> come to yoga. They came because they're suffering, right? They came right. because they were preparing for a hysterectomy or their kid had just attempted suicide or they're going through a divorce or they're up for tenure or whatever it is. Like there's something big in their lives and they're coming um, to the yoga classroom to grapple with that. And so if we leave it with just the body, I mean, the body is very, very important and Western culture especially is really disembodied. White culture is really disembodied. Uh, I think that's part one of the elements of the system of oppression is dis- disembodiment. Mm-hmm. Um, for whoever is in power. Um, but if, if we just leave it at the body and, and skip the heart and skip, skip our life experiences, skip what, you know, what brought us into the, the space in the first place, like that's also can be really deep because it's often that people's own, um, either they're, they're uh, recommitting to their ancestral practices for South Asian folks mm-hmm. or, um, coming because their own religious and spiritual traditions have failed them. Um, so I think it, it could be, 
I wouldn't ever dream of not teaching the philosophy because I know it can be how it can how beautiful it can be when we do share how the practice lives through each of us. Mm. Lovely. I mean, I'm just spellbound by your eloquence in here in our conversation, and of course, in reading your book as well. It's like I I, I really am. Uh, uh, blown blown away by how well you speak to this stuff and uh i also know of course that you've had to say some of this stuff over and over again because uh you're doing the usual book launch events and such and so i want to ask you um what have you not been asked in one of these interviews that you wish someone would ask mm. I haven't been at that, asked that much about my chapter on that I speak to accountability and calling in and calling out and uh, white fragility in that and um, searching for someone to blame and shame. Ah, the subjects that scare people. Funny, <laughs> funny thing that you haven't been asked about the stuff that scares people. Well, well, I, I. Uh, I'm a big believer in going where it's scary. So um, I I want to ask you about it. I want to ask you to talk about, about that for a little bit, if you would. Sure. Um, I've, I've seen, you know, as a, in activist culture, there could be such an expectation of purity and having arrived and never mm -hmm. enacting oppression. And, and yes. Um, I think that that high standard to aspire to is beautiful and we have to make room for our humanity, our mistakes and errors and flaws and the ways that we reproduce the systems that we're breathing in. Um, uh, so, you know, I wrote a, a chapter on forgiveness, chapter on anger that touches into some of that. Um, but also, um, then there's the other side of it where I see yoga and Buddhist yoga studios and, and Buddhist practice spaces that get called out and um, they, well, often a defense mechanism is um, uh, a spiritual bypass of like, we're all one or, you know, we're the good ones or, you know, like not wanting to address it. Mm. Um, and that's part of, that's certainly been part of my story where I've been, um, taught at many studios that didn't want to have certain conversations about price and who gets to access the space and who the price <laughs> excludes or um, conversation about gender and like the gender bathrooms and um, just the ways that people interact with each other in the space that can be, um, yeah, ex exclusive for people or, or, um, so many yoga studios are up a steep flight of stairs, right? And like not accessible to so many people. Um, um, and I guess I'll also say on this topic that in the last year I've been supporting someone who's canceled, um, who is in social justice work and got canceled. And then also supporting a couple of friends of mine who had a divorce um, where one cheated on the other and, and they got divorced and, um, you know, in both situations, I like, I like saw the thing go down and went right towards it because <laughs> I was mm -hmm. like, 
there's opportunity here. Um, like, ha let's get messy. Let's get dirty. This is, this is it. Um, you know, uh, so supporting someone who's been canceled, you know, when we cancel someone is often a scapegoating um, mm -hmm. of an individual when there's really a, a whole system that's responsible. And so we're trying to like let ourselves or let our friends or let our colleagues off the hook and just blame that one person like that. That's it. They're the problem. It's mm -hmm. Dave Chappelle. <laughs> it's only mm -hmm. Dave Chappelle. But it's, you know, he's just reproducing what's in our culture. Um, and then the same thing in divorce or, or, or uh, breakups or even within organizations, right? When there's like tactical, strategic uh, vision disagreements where there's a split. Um, I think it's so, it's, it's such a ripe opportunity to not let the community be split in that moment to like get big enough to hold this too. So that like this break can happen right in the middle and to not have it break our organizations, to not have it break our spiritual institutions um, seems really important. And then I'm also thinking about Alicia Garza and her speech in 2017 at the Allied Media Conference where she was saying, you know, do not say to people that are just now entering social justice movement, where have you been? Um, even if they're, you know, late to waking up to like injustices, let's greet them by saying like, thank goodness you're here. Get your hands dirty. <laughs> we have work to do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's some spiritual work that we need to do individually in our own hearts to grow big enough to hold the mistakes and the flaws and the breaks. Um, and then certainly collectively how to do, go through that together and not, kick someone out because their humanity showed. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's so important and it really, it is, it is off-putting in social justice work. It keeps me away from a lot of activist circles because right. it's like, okay, you know, I, I want to work with friends with beloved community and uh, you know, having watched, you know, that, you know, sort of mob action, you know, cancellation, scapegoating happened to people whose humanity show or who just are just, you know, accused and convicted without trial of something. Right. I think, you know, I can't be in these circles because friendship and loyalty are too important to me. And I know that these people will all turn on me as soon as I disagree with them on any point of ideology, or as soon as I'm accused of something, whether or not it's something I did, whether it was an actual lapse or imperfection or just yeah. somebody accusing me of something, like why would I do all this work with people who are only there for me as long as they're you know, projecting some purity onto me. Mm -hmm. And I think that that keeps a lot of people, I think, away from, yeah. from getting deeply involved in social justice work, that it's so, it's so ugly because there is such a, a deeply ingrained culture of scapegoating. Yeah. And of course, that brings me to the obvious uh, question. What can, uh, what can this practice, what can this what can this do? What can these yoga practices that you write about offer as a, a yeah. an antidote to that, as a solution, as an alternative? Yeah, one of 
one of my wise friends um, said a few years ago, and it just keeps ringing in my head. And uh, I wrote it in the book too, is that, you know, shame and blame and guilt are not liberatory. <laughs> that doesn't get us there. <laughs> um, but these practices do, right? Com the practice of compassion, the practice of letting go, the practice of forgiveness does, does get us there. I also think when there's relationships of cross difference, like it's going to come up. It's inevitable. Like we have to have relationships across difference in order to forward our movements, right? Like we need those in power, leveraging that power um, towards justice. And then we know, need those who are most impacted at leadership so that they're, you know, telling us where it hurts the most so we can attend to the biggest gush of blood <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and not just, not just the small cut. Um, so, you know, when I'm, I'm white and when I'm in relationship with black and indigenous and people of color, I know in any new relationship that it's going to come up. Like if we know each other and we're close enough for long enough, there's going to be some shit that comes up because of white <laughs> supremacy. And it's going to be a test to each of us in our spiritual practice. What do we do when it comes up? Right. Like, do we ice each other out? Do we not call each other back for a year? Do we never collaborate again? Um, do we blast each other on medium.com? Um, or, I mean, for me, in this particular instance, being person in a position of power, I know that when it comes up, I need to soften and listen and put all of my defenses down and just know that this is both about me and our relationship, but it also precedes this relationship, right? One thing that I know from studying with Hala Kori, a, a somatic experiencing practitioner, um, is that when it's hysterical, it's historical, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just about this moment. It's because their parents lived through this and their, you know, their ancestors lived through this and they're like, they're done. They're exhausted. They're, um, at their at their wits end and it's coming out on me because it's showing it's it's showing up in our relationship too um so i know after years of practice of being in relationship across difference that when it comes up um to set aside my ego to not need to be right and to just listen and to really ask like how can i support you or what's needed or how can we mend this um or you know if I said that in a way that was harmful, like, how do you wish that I said that? Or what had, what do you wish that I had done so that I can do that the next time when this arises, right? Like one of my friends um, uh, during the racial reckoning of last year is a really hard year for her and her partner. Um, she's mixed race and her partner's mixed race and they're trying to get pregnant and, you know, everything going going on around the country and it was just like all brought to the surface and it's in you know they're they're marked as people of color and they're also have ancestors who are white too so it's it's like deep within their body too um so what came up is is i um hadn't realized that i was asking my friend for something like and asking her for a few too many things for her to show up for me and actually um, 
she needed me to show up in that moment. And so she needed to take some space to take some time from the relationship and then cycle back. Sometimes we don't always get to cycle back. Sometimes we don't always want to cycle back. Um, But um, coming back and telling me that, like, hey, when I really needed you, you were asking me for something. And that sucked. (laughs) Um, That tells me how I need to show up in those moments where something is inflamed in our country and, and a certain targeted community is, is in the spotlight, um, that, uh, that's not the time for any of my needs to be front and center. <laughs> right. But we know, but we, you know, I think we, the blessing of the practices is, is that, uh, it allows us room to, to learn and, hopefully out of our awareness and our presence, um, we don't make the same mistake again. We certainly will make Mm -hmm. more mistakes, but we don't make the same mistake. Yes. Any final thoughts we want to put out there? I guess one final thought is, um, you know, I say in the book, um, part of why this book I think, I hope is important is because it's written by a queer person and a trans person. And that's rare in the field of, of yoga and Buddhism. Um, and all, but also part of what's important about it, I think, is that I've been embedded in queer and trans communities and anti-racist work um, for a couple of decades. And so, you know, I always get wary when, you know, someone is marked as important because of only their identity mm-hmm. when their commitments or their politics might actually betray the community that they're part of. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess I just um, um, want to, want to distinguish that, that I'm, you know, I write a whole chapter in deep devotion and, and joy to queer people. And one of my friends was just reflecting earlier, you know, from my launch party the other night that um, the piece that I read in my chapter on joy is that um, I love being queer and I guess I could possibly make it if I was not queer, but there's so much joy and beauty in, in queer community. And I, that's another place where this book comes out of is just like cherishing my people and seeing the leadership and the creativity and the artwork and um, the innovations in healthcare come out of um, people that are, are targeted and have been harmed. Like we often have the best view of things and sense of what needs to change and how it needs to shift and how specifically it could be better. Yes, absolutely. Beautiful, beautiful. Beautiful. Well, that's a beautiful note to close on. We are about at time. So Jacoby, I just want to thank you so much for this conversation. It's been such a pleasure uh, getting to getting to meet you through yeah. these events. You too, Nick. I hope we can keep in touch. Oh yeah, let's. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. 
If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Enlin Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.